For all those that are remaining in the auditorium and also watching online, take your Bibles if you would, Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18, Lord willing, this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. The title for this morning's sermon is Relationship, and we're going to be talking about relationship, the beauty of it, the reality of it, and the most important one we can have, which is with the one who made us, loves us, died and rose again for us. This really is the trajectory of this letter slash set of sermon notes as the preacher or author comes before his audience, Jewish Christians, who for a number of reasons are struggling with staying with Jesus. There is persecution on all sides, persecution from Rome, also persecution from their fellow Jews. So maybe, maybe it's just easier to go back to Judaism. We may have some doubts, we may have some concerns that it's inferior, but maybe, just maybe, it's easier to go back to Judaism. And that way, we don't have to worry about all of the persecution, all of the hardship. It might just be the thing to do. And so the author, the pastor, comes and says, no. Relationship with God is of utmost importance. It is a stability to our lives. It is an anchor for our soul. It is security for our hearts. It is calm and peace when doubts and fears assail us. Nothing should be sacrificed for the relationship that can be gained with the one who made us and loves us only through Jesus Christ. It cannot come by any other means. And that relationship you should hang on to. But the temptation is to settle for lesser realities. And so when Mel and I were dating, we had to be apart for periods of time. And in order to stay connected during those times of being apart, she got for me a red fleece blanket. It was a tangible reminder of her. And I got for her a little brown teddy bear. Got named Allspice by one of her relatives. And uh, that was not the name I picked, or Mel, I don't think, but that's, that's the name that stuck. And those were just tokens, things that we could see visibly, touch physically to remind ourselves of each other until uh, we were done dating and were now married. But it would be a little weird if I still clung to that blanket and Mel said, hey, hon, you want to watch a movie together? No, just me and the blanket. We're just hanging out. Or if I was to walk in the kitchen and Mel's sitting at the table with the teddy bear on the seat next to her, professing her undying love to Allspice, <laughs> something's off here. That's what the Jewish Christians were tempted to do. There were shadows of the real. There were copies of the real. 
There were good things that God gave to his nation Israel to remind them of him and to show himself to them. But once Jesus was here, the real, why are you tempted to go back to a copy, tempted to go back to an object, tempted to go back to something other than the real? But it's worse than that. This is a little known fact. And I'm going to open up a little bit more this morning to you. I'm feeling vulnerable after last night's leaf win. (laughs) When Mel first met me, her response to a good friend of hers was, I would never, ever, ever be interested in him. (laughs) He's goofy and weird and strange and crazy and all those things are true and she's like there's no way not my kind of guy not gonna happen so how would it be now after be 21 years of marriage this coming July if I had written that out maybe in cursive script got somebody to do that in calligraphy big big poster and that was what I was clinging to Hey, babe, thanks for that card of encouragement, but this phrase from you, I would never, ever, ever be together with that guy. That's what I'm clinging to. Just warms my heart. (laughs) The law is good and was designed to show the nation of Israel the realities of relationship with God, but the law also had another purpose. The law was to show the nation of Israel, you're not holy. You can't do this on your own. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not beautiful enough. You're not moral enough to come before a thrice holy God. You need his grace. So why would there be a temptation to cling to the very thing that shows you you're separated from the one that you want relationship with. It's not just that these Jewish Christians are tempted to cling to physical things, tangible things, copy things. They're actually tempted to cling to the very thing that reminds them that they're not in relationship with God or that there is a blockage to relationship with God, their lack of holiness. And yet, as we sit here this morning and are tempted to laugh at these Jewish Christians, seriously? You want to go back to the sacrificial system? You want to go back to the way that you cut your hair or no cut your hair and what you can eat and what you can wear? And you, Really? That attracts you? I mean, I struggled to go through Leviticus just last year with Pastor Jeff and Pastor Luke and some guest speakers preaching it, and that was like a rough year. You want to go back to that for your life? Ha, 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 these Jewish Christians. And yet, and yet, what is the subtle temptation that all of us struggle with is those that say we believe in God's grace, what are we clinging to? We cling to our ability to keep the rules? Are we clinging to our ability to be moral? Are we clinging to our ability to say the right words in the right way, to attend the right events, 
to do the right things? Where do we find our assurance of relationship with God? If it's in anyone other than Jesus Christ, it is false. It is a false assurance. Those temptations always exist. As Calvin once said, our hearts are idol factories, not I-D-L-E, but I-D-O-L. We're always producing things to worship other than the only one worthy of our worship, God himself. So we worship our good behavior, we worship our track record, we worship our reputation, we worship the things that we do, we worship the things that we don't do. And yet if we're clinging to anything other than God's grace, we are clinging to a false assurance because it should be known by us and remembered by us that we're not good enough, we're not holy enough. We only stand in relationship with God because of God's grace. So don't go after those other things. That would be like me having a picture of Mel in a, in a photo frame and kissing the picture. Stop kissing the picture. You can have a relationship with the real person through Jesus Christ. Don't settle for less. And that is the message not just to the Jewish Christians that were written to prior to AD 70 here in our book of Hebrews that we're going through, but that is the message to all of us this morning. So, let's dive into the text. I'm going to read for you, and you're hearing then, verses 1 through 18 of Hebrews chapter 10. Follow along if you would. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you should find one there under the seats in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at all, please take that with you. That is our free gift uh, to you. The book of Hebrews, I believe it's around 934, 935, towards the end of the book. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." 
And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of God. So perhaps you are here this morning and you are struggling in your relationship with God. And if that is the case, then you are normal, and that is the case for every believer in Jesus Christ at some point in that relationship with God. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've come to a place where you're not struggling in your relationship with God, at least insofar as it relates to assurance of, your, of that relationship. Praise God for that, continue in that, and encourage others to do the same. Because there is always a tendency in us towards doubt and fear, towards believing that we have something to do with this relationship, or that our actions or lack thereof can permanently damage the relationship. And we need these reminders. The author of Hebrews, the pastor, has been working towards this, and you'll note that there are some some seeming repetitions, seeming redundancies. We've heard some of these things before in our walk through Hebrews. But perhaps the capstone chapter to the book of Hebrews is this particular chapter, where there is a summation of the things that have been said before, before he moves on to say, now what do you do with all of this? And so in the first place, the first four verses, we see relationship that is stable. It is not unstable. Have you ever been involved in a relationship that you were unsure of its status? I'm not really sure. I think things are okay, and certainly on the surface, I I don't think there's anything between me and this person, and yet there seems to be some indications. Maybe I'm misreading things, but maybe they are there. I'm just not sure. We walk on eggshells a little bit. We're We're not sure. There's an instability there in that relationship. There seems by times that everything is good and then the next minute things aren't good and then we try to patch things up and we apologize sometimes for things that we didn't even do wrong and then things seem to be okay again and then again we're uh, sort of on the back foot. These are not healthy relationships. They're dysfunctional relationships. And that is not the type of relationship that God desires to have with us and and us with him. It's a relationship that is stable or ought to be. Notice then, as he walks through this reality and this progression, the first four verses. First place, the law could not make us perfect. The law is but a shadow of the good things to come. There was an instability there in that relationship. Shouldn't have been in many ways because God made it clear that he was in relationship with his people. He loved them, Deuteronomy 7 and many other passages. And yet, when, under the Old Testament law, though the law was good, there was always that instability. A big part of it as we walk through the book of Leviticus, and thank God that we did, although we may have had a rough year last year as we did, it wasn't just the five different types of sacrifices and all of these rules and regulations, but there was also that, remember, that concept of cleanliness, to be clean or unclean. And this permeates the book of Leviticus. If you touch this, you're unclean, you need to wait until the evening, wash yourself with water, then you can become clean again. If you do this activity, you're unclean. If this happens, you're unclean, and you can't do these certain things until you become clean again. 
There's always that sense of, am I unclean? Am I clean? There, there's, there, there's that instability there with the law. There's not assurance on behalf of a regular Jewish individual that they were going to make it all the way to the end, that, I, that I'm, I'm okay, God and I are good. There's an instability there that should not exist after Christ. What proves this? This continuous sacrifices. Year after year, they're continually offered, it says at the end of verse 1, and so in verse 2 it says, otherwise, they would, would they not have ceased to be offered? If you believed that everything was good between you and God, that everything was, was uh, atoned for, why would you continually bring more sacrifices? And it's not just the sacrifice for specific sins of the five different varieties that we look through in the Leviticus, but also I think in particular he has in mind Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Every single year there was a whole day dedicated to offering sacrifices on behalf of the high priest and on behalf of the people for, as we learn from Hebrews 9, unintentional sins of the people. Not just the things that you're aware of, the things that you may have done that you weren't aware of that were sin and made you unclean. The law is this big, huge, thousand lumen light that is just constantly on you to say, look at you, expose you, you're not holy. God is and you're not. Which is a good thing, but it's incomplete. Yes, I, I can see that I'm not holy. Now, what am I supposed to do about that? Okay. Well, that's where Jesus comes in. That's where the sacrifices came in at that time, and that's where Jesus comes in ultimately. But this continual sacrifice proves that there was an instability, an incompleteness to the relationship with God in the Old Testament. And awareness of sin proves this. We talked about conscience. Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. I offered a sacrifice, I walk away, things are good. Why then is there that continual reality of guilt? Why am I continually unsure of where I stand? Why do I continue to fear, and not fear in a good way, God, but to fear in a different way, being in God's presence? I mean, recount with me, if you would, some of the stories down through Israel's history. How many times did plagues run rampant through the nation of Israel? Like, if you're there as a regular Jew, and Hophni and Phinehas go up, sons of Aaron, newly minted as priests in the same order as their father, and both are struck dead, and you're standing there as these two charred bodies go outside the camp. I don't know about you, I'm a little nervous. And then you're there, and the sons of Korah have come and said, look, who's this Moses guy anyway? Why did he get the lead and not us? And God says, stand back from them, and he opens up the ground, and the ground swallows these guys and their families whole. Once again, not sure about you, but I'm going to be like, hmm, Wonder where I am at with God. Ground's feeling a little bit squishy. Plagues come rushing through. Snake on a pole. 
time after time after time because of the grumbling and the complaining and the sin and the disobedience of the people. The author of the book of Hebrews says to his Jewish Christian audience, you know what I'm talking about. It's hard to out-guilt a good Jewish person as it is hard to out-guilt someone who has lived under these realities. You talk to anybody who is involved in a system that is top-down, rules and regulations, legislation heavy, and they know what you're talking about. You want guilt? We got guilt in spades. Martin Luther, Catholic priest, outdoing all of his fellow priests through confession. You want somebody to confess their sins? Man, I got hours. Continual consciousness of sins. Notice verse 3 in the fourth place the law prevents close relationship. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. You imagine being an Old Testament Jew in this system, and your best hope is that this year, God accepts the sacrifice of the high priest, and he doesn't die as he's offering sacrifices on your behalf. Whew. All right. <sighs> Last year was good. Now... What about this year? If you thought that you had gotten to a place where you were good, everything's good, there's a reminder of sins every year in those sacrifices. It's almost like God institutes a system whereby there's a megaphone that continually announces to the nation of Israel, you're not holy. You can't do it on your own. And yet as late as Second Temple Judaism, there's a young man who meets the Son of God himself and says, I've kept all of the law from my youth up. Stubbornness is endemic to the human nature. Give me a list of rules, baby. Add some more. Give me a challenge. I can do it. We rarely doubt our own goodness, but we should, and the law is there to remind us that we're not good enough. We are not perfect. There's a reminder of sins every year. It's one of the law's purposes. Paul says it's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to remind us that we are not perfect, and yet Jesus is the one who draws us near. Notice what is implied in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins permanently. An animal is a stopgap, but an animal cannot be a permanent solution to a human's sins. Read, if you would, the dedication of the first temple. And do a little math, if that's your thing, and calculate just how many animals were sacrificed at the dedication of that temple. It's easy on that front because it's in the text. Then maybe do a little calculation of how many liters of blood are in an animal's body, and then you can go a little crazy with that, and just see how much animal sacrifice was involved just in that one week-long event where Solomon dedicates the temple. 
wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. You can't sacrifice enough animals to make yourself right with God. It's not enough. But what is the implication? What has the author of Hebrews been saying this whole time? He's fairly screaming it at us. Jesus' blood is enough. His blood is enough. His blood is more than enough. His blood shed is enough. He is the perfect one of us. And his once and for all sacrifice can cleanse us of all of our sins. Where it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to cleanse us from sins, it is possible for the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from all of our sins. The author of Hebrews is not trying to dampen the Jewish enthusiasm, but he is trying to tell them the truth. Guys, stop kissing the picture in the frame. Stop falling in love with the shadow. Yes, it's tangible. Yes, it might capture a moment that you're particularly fond of and cause you to not remember moments in a relationship that you're not particularly fond of, but that snapshot is not a relationship. It simply captures a moment in time in a relationship. But why are you settling for that when you can have the relationship? You can be rightly related to the one who spoke you into existence and who desires to have you in his presence for all of eternity. Don't settle for the, the fake, for the shadows, the good things but the, not the ultimate things. So there's a, a stable relationship that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. But also in the second place, it's a relationship based on obedience. Verses 5 through 10. And some of you see this point come up on the screen and are like, I knew it. There's a catch. But uh, stay with me. <laughs> Whose obedience? Why is it that we always assume everything's about us? another one of our beautiful human traits. <laughs> Always talking about obedience. Well, that's me, and um, I can't do it. That's the point. It's a relationship based on obedience, not yours. Jesus Christ the righteous, his obedience on your behalf. Everywhere you fail, he succeeds. Everywhere you and I fail, he succeeds. Notice Christ obeyed in the incarnation. When Christ came into the world, God said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, quoting from a portion of Psalm 40, parts of which we read throughout the liturgy, but a body have you prepared for me. I believe here we have an Old Testament implication of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. How is it possible that God can reconcile sinful humanity to himself? Humanity cannot come up to him. We can't do it. We've tried. We even tried to build buildings back in the days before the languages scattered us. We've tried everything. Moral ladders that we construct, even physical ladders that we construct. We can't go up to God. So before he ever spoke anything into existence, he had a plan that he would come down to us. 
And Jesus Christ the righteous did not just become one of us. He's still one of us. When you see him one day in glory, if you are one of his, you will see him as his disciples did post-resurrection. That's just a small indication of how much he loves you. He has incarnated. He has become human because of his love for us so that we could be in relationship with him. Our obedience is insufficient, verse 6. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. The writer of Psalms and the writer of Hebrews is not saying that somehow the sacrificial system was wrong. Certainly not evil. It was instituted by God. It is insufficient and incomplete. Psalm 51, other Psalms, other recountings of this. What do the authors in the Old Testament say? If you want burnt offerings, if you want sacrifices, I'll give those to you. God, I'll do whatever. I so desire to be in relationship with you, but I know there's nothing I can do. I can't offer enough animal sacrifice. I can't give enough money. I can't do enough good things. I can't. I can't get to you. God, you're going to have to come to me. And he did through Jesus Christ. So Christ's obedience is complete in verse 7. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Good Friday service, we showed a video. And what was interesting is it tied together two gardens. And in that first garden, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, said, nevertheless, not your will, but ours be done. And in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus flipped that and said, nevertheless, not my will, but God, yours be done. And that's the difference. Why did Jesus come? He came to do the will of his Father. Which again, should correct for us an incorrect theology that says, God's not sure about us, he's kind of perpetually disappointed with us, but thanks be to God that Jesus loves us, otherwise the Father's wrath would not be appeased. And we've got it completely wrong. Who loved us first? The Father, God the Trinity, but the Father loved us and sent his Son. It's the Father's love that compels the Son's obedience. And what does the Son say continually during his time here? I've come to do the will of my Father in heaven. I have come to do the will of my Father in heaven. That should be all of us. Unfortunately, it isn't. But fortunately, it is through Jesus Christ. His obedience is complete. He only ever did the will of his Father. So that his righteousness can be ours and the penalty for our sinfulness is paid for by him. There's no greater love. There's no greater sacrifice. So our relationship is secured by the full obedience of Christ. When he said above, quoting Psalm 40, you have neither desire nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It was the Father's will to save us. It was the Son's will to do the Father's will. And it's the Spirit's will to do the Father and Son's will. And through the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we can be brought into relationship with God. The one that we're estranged from. The one that we're rebellious against. The one that we maybe previously even mocked 
and definitely ignored. That one we can be drawn into relationship with. And one of the key phrases in Hebrew is all throughout is draw near. Draw near. Draw near. Come. We can have relationship. A stable relationship. A secure relationship with the one who made us. Why is it that so many in our culture are insecure and unstable? They're not sure. And the statistics, especially amongst the younger generation, are staggering. The key question that they seem to struggle to answer is, who am I? Down to the core of their being, identity. To not know who you are is an awful place to be. And the truth then is not self-empowerment. The truth is not that you're God and you can do whatever you want. No, the truth is this. You're not God, but there is one who is. And your identity can only be found in him. He's the one who made you. He's the one who knows who you are and who you're supposed to be. And he's the one who came all the way down so you could be brought up to him. The only way you can find peace and contentment and comfort and all the things that you're actually looking for is to be plugged back into relationship with the one that you're currently estranged from. You need Jesus Christ. He can bring you into relationship with the Father. Repent of your sins and believe and trust in him and him alone. And he alone can give you joy, peace, comfort, contentment, all of these things. But this raging insecurity and raging instability in our culture is, is because our culture has largely rejected God. They've unplugged themselves from the only one who can show them who they are. Notice then in the third place, a relationship that is secure. As mentioned, some of you may be here this morning and you are wrestling in your relationship with God. You're not sure. Things that you've done in your past that very few people know about, that you're still struggling with that guilt, and maybe that has turned into shame. Guilt is a proper response to our sinfulness. Shame is an improper response to our sinfulness because shame is an identifier. Guilt identifies sin. Shame identifies a person. Guilt says, I have sinned. Shame says, and that's who I am. And the beauty of the gospel is that it can blow wide open all of those categories. You are not defined by your sin. You're not defined by a particular act of sin. Thanks be to God, you're not defined by who you used to be, but you can be defined by Jesus Christ. I give an assignment to numerous individuals that I counsel biblically Go through the New Testament and check out the phrase, in Christ. And it's easy now with all the technology. You can go on to any of the online Bible search engines and just type in those two words, in Christ. I've received at least two pages back to front of all the verses that say, in Christ. And go through there and write a list of all the things that are true because you're in Christ, if you are in Christ. That's who you are or you can be in Christ. And if you're struggling, memorize Hebrews 10, 14. Write it out, put it on a three and a half by five card, put it on your fridge, put it over the sink, 
Put it by the bathroom mirror when you wake up. Our relationship with Christ is secure not because of us, but because of him. Notice Christ's work is done. Every priest stands daily at his service. We've already said this at least a number of times throughout Hebrews, but the writer of Hebrews comes back here. Priests stand. There's no chairs. There are no chairs in the tabernacle of the temple. There's no furniture for sitting down because the, the work is never done. But Christ sits. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work is done. What he came to do, it is done. Yeah, but what about it's done? But you don't know it's done. Yeah, but there was that one time, it's done. Christ's work is done. It's finished. And it's complete. Notice verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Yeah, but I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. It is finished. Yeah, but what about in five years from now? It is finished. Yeah, but I'm not, it is finished. Christ's work is done and it is complete. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified in him. Take Hebrews 10, 14. Write it out. Memorize it. And you will still struggle with assurance of salvation. But you need to tell yourself the truth until your emotions catch up. This is the truth from God's word. Your relationship with God is not dependent on your ability to keep it, but it is dependent on Christ's work in order to uh, make it possible, and he has done all of it. It's complete, and it's done. Therefore, in verses 15 through 18, relationship with God changes everything, or should change everything. God changes us from the inside out. And the Holy Spirit also bore witness to us for after saying, and this is Jeremiah 31, which he's already quoted, this is the covenant I will make with them. I'll put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. One of the many things the law could not do is change somebody from the inside out. It could certainly clean up the outside, and the Pharisees went even further on their cleansing rituals. It could certainly make someone a more moral person it can make somebody look more like God, but the one thing it couldn't do is fully bring them into relationship with God. Only God can do that. Only God can change a human heart. And that requires a new nature, an internal change. As Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. There's a regenerative work of God that must take place Otherwise, we are still dead in our sins, Ephesians 1. We might look good on the outside, but what did Jesus talk about the Pharisees? You're like these beautiful marble mausoleums, gorgeous structures. What's inside? Rotting, decaying human flesh. Outside, you look good. Inside, not so much. What needs to change? What needs to change is the inside. And that's the work that God does because of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Notice then, God changes how we are seen by him. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now there are some great promises in scripture and that's got to be up there. And it's repeated both Old and New Testament. <clears throat> God is omniscient. He doesn't forget 
But what does he do? He remembers that we are forgiven. He doesn't bring that stuff up. You ever have those relationships? Where the individual doesn't get hysterical, but they get historical? We do this all the time. We want dirt on other people because we know eventually they're going to have dirt on us. And so if we both have dirt, maybe because of the fear of that dirt getting out, we'll sort of have this kind of stalemate, this ceasefire. How unstable is it? How insecure is it? To have a relationship with somebody and never knowing if the day is going to come where they're going to reveal your sin. That's dysfunctional. That's, that's not a healthy relationship where someone holds something over you. What does God say? There is therefore no condemnation. What does John say? Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with judgment. God's not up in heaven with a huge mallet and just loves smiting you every time you screw up. If that's your picture of your heavenly father, you need to get a new one that's biblical. God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And there's a lot of them. (laughs) We are the worst sinner that we know. And yet God forgives. He doesn't see us in our sinfulness, he sees us in Christ. So then God can change how we see him. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We talked not that long ago about a clean conscience. And some of you are sitting here this morning saying, man, that sounds great. Sign me up. It's not only possible, it's actual to those who trust in Jesus Christ. You ever heard somebody say, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself? We're dealing with a lot of bad theology this morning, so let's get this one out of the way. So you're more morally perfect than God? You're better than God? You have a higher standard than God? It's just a sneaky backdoor way of you still being God. And you're not. There is a God, and you're not him, and I'm not him. He has said through Jesus Christ, forgiven. So stop trying to seemingly take the moral high ground and say, well, thanks, God, for your forgiveness, but I just have to sort of, you know, castigate myself. i got to do penance. Are you saying in that moment that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ His suffering on the cross was not enough. You may not think you are, but that's what you're doing. If you're forgiven by God through Jesus Christ, you're forgiven all the way. So tell that to yourself until your emotions catch up. Guys, we have said this so many times at Grace. The gospel is not something for our past alone and a vague hope for the future. The gospel is something we need every single moment of every single day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. I don't feel this, but God has said that I'm forgiven. And so I will believe it. 
I don't feel it because I know how wretched I am. But I know it's true. Yes, I'm a sinner, but praise God, I'm also a saint. And he calls me his own. And he says that he remembers my lawlessness and my sinful deeds no more. He says I'm forgiven. He says it is finished and done. He says he will bring me all the way home. He says that the work that he's begun in me, he will perform until the day of Jesus Christ. So God, give me the faith to believe it. And give me the faith to live in light of it. Hebrews, all of scripture, but Hebrews is such good news because it is a revelation of the good news in Jesus Christ the righteous. So enough with these relationships that are insecure and unstable, that have us walking on eggshells, tiptoeing around certain things that we don't talk about, never really wondering if we're on firm ground, always questioning where we're at. Our relationship with God is not us kissing the picture frame. It's not us hanging on to the fleece blanket or the teddy bear. And it's certainly not us hanging on to the wrath and judgment of God, as if that is what brings us closer to him. No, the real is there. And it will get us through anything that life and God, because God is in control of all life, throws at us. When something happens that is too horrible to fathom, if you're clinging to your own righteousness, you will fail. But if you're clinging to Christ's righteousness on your behalf, you can succeed. When persecution comes, real persecution comes, you can continue to have joy and peace and love in God because it's his work in you that will keep bring you all the way home. These are the things that we must cling to. These are the truths we must always rehearse. They're so good. They're so rich. They're so deep. And they're way better than anything else. Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for your word. What a privilege and what a blessing it is to see these truths from it. Father, we can resonate with the original audience of this letter. We do have a tendency to worship things other than you. We do have a tendency to cling to other things than you. We do have a tendency to find our assurance in other people, primarily ourselves, other than you. And yet, Father, we need that continual reminder that our assurance only comes from you. You are Lord of Lords and King of Kings. You are the only Savior. You are the only way, truth, and life. Our career can't save us. Our good works can't save us. Relationship with other people cannot save us. The only thing that can save us, the only thing that can make us whole, the only thing that can help us to know who we are, the only thing that brings us hope is you. Because even though we are great sinners, there is a great Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. I pray this morning for anyone who does not know him, Father, may they talk to myself, one of the other elders, the person that brought them, talk to the person sitting next to them right now. How can I know, as 1 John 5 says, 
I've written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. How can I know? Because we can know. It's not presumptuous. It's not arrogant. It is the truth in love from God's word. And then, Father, for those who are believers in you, they have repented, are repenting. They're struggling with assurance. Father, help them to have these promises from your word. That through your Son, by your Spirit, you have perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Father, for those of us who have that assurance, through the ups and downs of life, through these experiences you've brought us to a place, we are just rejoicing and, and, and enjoying our relationship with you. Father, help us never to take that for granted and help us to, to reach out to those who are not, to help them and to bring them along, to show them the truth. God, help us to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.